morning's passage comes to us right out of the chute offered up by Mark in his gospel. The first chapter, verses 1, actually 1 through 15. May God open up to us an understanding of this word. Almost breathless, Mark begins, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, with you, I am well pleased. And then the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. This is the word of the Lord. So I was getting dressed the other day while working out at the Y. And I noticed, I'm sure it's completely out of whack. I noticed a man getting dressed near me who had tattoos all over his body. I tried not to gawk, after all we were in a locker room, but I noticed that on the calves of his legs were the images of three young women, one of whom was an infant, tiny, small, in the palm of hands, as the image made clear. He also had those big black round earplugs in his earlobes that it takes time to evolve into, starting out, I guess, with an ear piercing and then ever larger and larger objects. And he struck me as being uh, one of those from that generation, whatever that generation is and whatever one of those are. Uh, But I immediately stereotyped him And Lord Lord help me, lo and behold, he turned around and looked at me and said, can I ask you a question? 
I knew that it was either going to be a request for money or help in some way or him blowing me out for being one of those old, white-haired, bourgeois uh, establishment types. So I tentatively said, uh, sure, what's up? And he said to me, can you tell me what age you were when you began to discover how the world worked? Well, yeah, I mean, I sort of smiled and said, well, I'm still discovering it, but tell me what you mean. He said, well, I'm just starting to come into my own, and I'm discovering a lot of things I didn't know were true about politics and, and religion, for instance, and who I am. I'm, I'm the father of three wonderful girls, he said, and I'm I'm a husband, and I have a job, and I'm trying to support them and to be responsible and do what is right, yet I'm also discovering the world in a whole new way. I I had no idea how how powerful the powers are in the world that that, that seem to drive everything and all the political machinations behind it. I'm just now starting to understand all that. How old were you? And... Coincidentally, I was about his age, in my late 20s. Before that, I was pretty much unconscious. (laughs) I really was. I I just assumed that life was as it was perceived by my unconscious self. And uh, then I got married at 24, and then after some uh, real hard work, we tried to have a family, and... Uh, that was not easy, and then after uh, experiencing four miscarriages at five months, uh, I began to wake up from my unconscious state and ask deeper questions like, how does the world work anyway? And I explained that to him, not all of that, but some of it, and said, you know, you are exactly in the right place for your journey. You are coming into adulthood and consciousness, you're beginning to ask the right questions. I then shared with him at at his age, which was, again, the late 20s, that in asking those questions, I was led to seminary. It was one of those perfect evangelical moments where I could share my faith with him. He brought up the question, uh, and so I did. and he looked at me with great curiosity and wanted to know more about what that was about. He said he had grown up in a family that was, uh, uh, unfortunately, a split family. His father was uh, a Jew who did not practice when, they were, uh, when he was married to his mom, but later became an Orthodox Jew, yet his mom was not uh, practicing anything. He didn't know a lot about God and religion but wanted me to share what, what I did. Of course, I invited him to Riverside. I hope I don't see him here uh, today, thank goodness. Um, uh, for his sake, I wouldn't want him to be embarrassed. Uh, but he, he said he hoped to see me more at the Y, and I hope to as well. I was surprised by him that he even asked for advice from me. For asking for advice these days does not come often by younger people. 
I think mainly because we have bought into this great cultural lie that we are autonomous, self-made men and women with free choice, able to make objective, rational decisions. We are now our own autonomous authority. Until we grow up, that is, and discover what a joke that is, I was surprised, really, that this young man had already come to understand this. Unfortunately, apparently, not Eric Snowden, who took upon himself the authority to commit espionage for the sake of truth and freedom, even if he had to live a lie in the doing of it. For him, there is no authority other than his own personal view of truth and politics that shape his values. Some people see him as a hero, others a spy. Either way, I think he is a sign of the times. With access to enough information, my authority, my understanding of values is what matters. As I said, until we grow up. Then when we come into our own, we discover what a great deceit this is, for no one is autonomous. We are the products of millions of years of the wheeling and dealing of our DNA. We are and have been influenced by our families, our friends, or the lack of them, by our communities, the culture that we are brought up in. And no matter what culture that is that we claim for ourselves, to grow up in that culture means that we have been enculturated. We're not autonomous after all. When you grow up Southern, as I did, you don't know what that means. It just is the isness of things. But when you move from Charlotte to New Hampshire, you discover immediately what Southern is all about. First thing is I walked into a drugstore and asked for a hot dog all the way, expecting mustard, onions, chili, and slaw. I got back a bun that was cut off on both sides. You don't expose the bread on a hot dog. And on top of it was relish, Giddens hot mustard, and sauerkraut. That was all the way. I then understood a little bit about what it means to be Southern, especially whenever I spoke and those listening smiled. You don't really understand how enculturated you are until you get out of the perspective culture that you are in and look back at yourself, then you see. Even Jesus. Even Jesus. When Matthew and Luke tell their stories, they begin the gospel message with Jesus as an infant, those wonderful Christmas stories, especially in Luke, that we learn and live by at Christmas. But Mark and John, but Mark especially, the first gospel by 10 years, in fact, begins his story with Jesus as an older adult, we guess around 30 which according to the life expectancy back then meant he was an old guy, life expectancy being 40 to 50, 
an old guy by the time he started his ministry. Mark has no interest in his biological, or excuse me, biographical details, or biological either, of what he could end up being all through that 90% of his other life. All we know is that he was the son of a carpenter, that he grew up a Jew from Galilee, and he was probably poor and the first child. Mark instead rushes ahead to the moment that Jesus' Messiahship becomes public, and I think Jesus comes to terms with it as well, in the desert where he is hosted by John the Baptist and baptized in the River Jordan. Just as he comes up out of the water, they were dunked in those days, the heavens opened and he heard a voice from heaven proclaim, You are my son, the beloved, and in you I am well pleased. Doesn't say anyone else heard this in Mark, it just says Jesus did. Then almost as an afterthought, Mark sums up Jesus' temptation in the wilderness with just one verse. All 40 days of it in just one verse, as if to offer us a prelude to get us to the real point. That is, Jesus' ministry and who he was and what he was going to do from this point on. Mark says that now that John had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled at hand. Now the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Mark would have it, all this just happens lickety-split. But of course, there is way more to the story, as I said, and it doesn't take much imagination to picture Jesus struggling with his messiahship all through his life. I think he struggled with it even unto the cross. Who am I, really? What am I supposed to do, and how am I supposed to do it? How am I called to do it, and with what strength? Jesus, yes, divine, but also, yes, fully human, not unlike the rest of us. Luke says he grew in wisdom and stature all the days of his life, and he he was human as we. Then he was nurtured and taught and raised and mentored by his siblings and his mother, of course, and his rabbis and his friends and his mentors. Apparently, John the Baptist was just that for Jesus, a mentor, which is why Mark spends so much time there. Through the influence and mentoring of John the Baptist, Jesus came into his own. To say that is to say that Jesus, first of all, was a Jew. He was not a Gentile, Nor was he a Christian. There were no such things as Christians then. He was a Jew. He worshipped like a Jew. He preached in the temple, probably only because he must have been a Pharisee. He was baptized, washed like the Essenes or the Qumran sect, like the Jews. He was circumcised. He was 
dedicated at the temple. He followed the commandments. He lived out the religion and the rituals of Judaism. To say that he was a protege of John is to say that he was, first of all, a Jew. For a Jew, the existential struggle was not, who am I? That's our issue. There's no word in Hebrew for self, in fact. We, our self-absorbed culture, would be lost. For the Jew, the question was not, who am I, but who are we? We, the chosen people of God. We, the children of God. We, those set apart by God. We, those who claim we are the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For Jesus, the question was, who are we as God's chosen people? Especially, you see, in the day of Jesus, when the Roman oppression was so great that the Jews were having this incredible crisis of faith. If we are God's children, why are we suffering so much under the hand of Rome? The fact is that there were 10,000 crosses that circled the city of Jerusalem in Jesus' day. They were usually all full of those who were considered to be rabble-rousers, Jews, mostly zealots, troublemakers. When the Romans wanted to squish you, they did so, and not only you, but your women and your children and your livestock, as it so proved in 70 A.D., when they burned the temple down to the ground and everything in it. No accident, by the way, that Mark is writing his gospel at just that moment. You see, the question for the Jews at that point was, under this persecution, who are we now? Is God still our God? As for Jesus, that question became real for him when he came up out of the waters of baptism and he heard that voice claim, you are now my beloved In you I am well pleased. At that moment, Jesus came of age, and I think came to see in, in an epiphany way what he was truly called to do. You see, when you're being persecuted, you only have three options, basically. The first is you can appease. You can not make waves. You can hope that if you just try to do peace at any cost that nothing will happen. In those days, Rome won't beat you to death. You just try to appease. The second option is that you can fight back. You can become a militant, violent zealot. There were many of those in Jesus' day, too. The third option is that you can take your bags and leave town and go out into the desert or the wilderness and start your own holy, pure little community and wait for the end of the world. There's no other way out. And you don't want to be in there where Rome is all over the place. So you move outside into the mountains or the valleys or the, or the wilderness like the early Mormons or like so many cults like Jim Jones and so many others who sell everything they have and have this 
ritualistically pure little community thinking now that they're pure and the kingdom of God comes, we will be saved. That's the third way out. Actually, there are four. And this is what Jesus came to understand. What kind of Jewish Messiah would he be? A militant, violent zealot? A peacemaker at all costs, never raising any issues? Living out there with John the Baptist in the wilderness in a perfect little Qumran community of holiness? Or someone who is able to understand the suffering of the people and to go back into it with a word and a life of love and hope? Which is exactly what he did. The text says, immediately after the wilderness, he goes back to Galilee. He leaves the seclusion of the desert, goes back to his people to proclaim this. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. What was the good news? That it may appear as if God has abandoned you in your suffering... It may appear as if God is no longer your God and you are no longer God's child. It may appear as if it is a hopeless and lost cause. But the good news is that I am the very presence of God's incarnate love to you and that as long as that incarnate presence is real, you are not abandoned. The good news is that God will not leave us up to our own devices and that nothing will separate us from God's love. The good news is that God is a God not of wrath, but forgiveness, not of justice so much as mercy. God is a God that will not let us go no matter what. Believe that, he said, that is now present in your midst at hand. All the Gospels are clear, it seems to me, that Jesus had the option of choosing militant, Violence and vigilantism, sectarianism, appeasement. But he chose instead to walk right back into the heart of the suffering and the loss, back to his people to proclaim the only word of hope that's worth proclaiming. God is still God, and we are still God's children It brings me comfort to believe that Jesus, like the rest of us, was a work in progress. That he really wasn't born like those medieval paintings paint him with, as an infant, a halo over his head as if he already has all the fullness of God's knowledge at birth. Mark wants us to see that at his moment of baptism, Jesus had one of those life-changing epiphanies that redirects everything. And he had it by hearing that he was God's son. The kingdom of God is at hand, he said. And that is what we have to say, too. Repent, he said, which is to turn around from all that enculturation and all of those idolatries and all of the ways that we think ourselves are really that important. Turn around from that and turn back to the kingdom of God. This is the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, God is present always. When Jesus came into himself, he came to see this.
May it be so for us. Amen.